0: This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Save your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. And if you're new today, we have been going through the first of the year, through the Gospels, and we've been looking at the ministry of Christ really with the background of texts that involve food and drink in some way, usually a meal as the background. And in Luke 24, we see the risen Christ sharing a meal with some people. And so we're going to look this morning at Luke 24, and we're going to read most of this chapter, the first 43 verses of Luke 24, and I've entitled this message, Burning Hearts and Broken Bread. Luke 24, and let's begin with verse 1. The Bible says, on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. we're going to a village named Emmaus about 7 miles from Jerusalem and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened while they were still talking and discussing together Jesus himself drew near and went with them but their eyes were kept from recognizing him and he said to them what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk and they stood still looking sad So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, "Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures?" And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11. And those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet, that it is I myself... Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us today uh, to taste And see the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And may it come home to us, not just as something that happened in history. But something that can utterly transform our lives today. Help us to understand your word by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yesterday we had a mission team in Syracuse, New York. And part of their outreach to that community was that they did a big Easter egg hunt for the community, there were hundreds of people who were there, and hopefully, though, it wasn't as exciting as an Easter egg hunt that took place in England a few years ago. Stuart Moffat arose the Saturday before Easter, and he, he took his wife and his three kids to the annual egg hunt that took place in the English town of Holford, Somerset. And there were like about 25 kids, they were out in the field hunting for eggs, when Stuart noticed that a little three-year-old boy kind of wandered off to the edge of the field and he was peering down at something. And so Stuart went over to him and it appeared to be in sort of like an egg, but sort of a different shape and different uh, texture, and as he got closer, he saw that actually this was not an Easter egg, actually this was a hand grenade, a real live functioning World War II era hand grenade. He scooped the little boy up in his arms and, and quietly backed off, and thank God there was no explosion. But in another way, there should be an explosion in our hearts and lives at Easter. An explosion of joy. But for many people in our culture, you know, today is just another day. And, and even for many Christians, I'm not sure how deeply we truly understand the implications of the resurrection of Christ. And if we don't understand, we can miss it. We can miss what God wants us to grasp on this day. And we don't want to do that. How could that happen and, and how do we prevent it? The first of all, the, the first thing that Luke is saying here is don't miss the miracle of the resurrection. So we see in verse 1, That on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. So what kind of spices were they? They were burial spices. And that's because these women are going to the tomb, not expecting to find an empty tomb, but a tomb with a dead body in it. There's no expectation whatsoever of resurrection. It was the same way with the the two that Jesus encounters on the, the road. You can see by their whole mindset. The last thing in the world they are expecting is for Jesus to be raised. And so they say in verse 21, We had hoped that he was the one. But obviously he wasn't the one because we saw him crucified. And so what was their mindset? Verse 17 says they stood still looking sad. They're not expecting resurrection. And yet... By the end of the day, these women, the two on the road, they're, they're going to be exploding with joy. Their lives are going to be utterly transformed. In fact, they're going to devote the rest of their lives to telling people that Jesus is alive and in most cases, give their lives as martyrs rather than recant that. What happened? What happened is that they encountered the risen Christ. What about the disciples? I mean, we see here that even after the women come from the tomb and they tell them what they have witnessed, they don't believe these women. They say, you know, these, these women, they're, they're being emotional. I mean, they're, they're telling an, an, an idle tale. Maybe, maybe they've seen some sort of a, of a vision, but they absolutely do not believe. And, and we saw last week that on the night that Jesus was arrested, I mean, these guys took off and fled. Uh, they were out of there. I mean, they, they fled like cowards. They didn't expect resurrection. And, and they're going back to their, their old lives. They're just hoping to, to, to just save their skins, to save their necks, and, and, and keep from being killed themselves. They're going to go back to their old lives, their fishing nets or whatever. There's no expectation whatsoever of resurrection. And yet, these same men, the same men who fled like cowards the night that Jesus was arrested, these same men... And just a few days later, I mean, they're going to be standing before thousands of people. They're going to be preaching about the resurrection. They're going to devote the rest of their lives to telling people about it. And in most cases, they're going to die as martyrs rather than recant that. What happened? How do you account for that? Apart from the fact that they did indeed witness the risen Christ. Now, some would say today, you know, but hey, I mean these are first century people, they're primitive people, we're modern people, I mean we're beyond believing in things like the resurrection of Christ. Well, you know, first of all, we don't want to engage in what the Christian writer C. S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. And that is, you know, thinking that we're smarter just because we live today. Just because we have smartphones. Doesn't mean that we're actually smarter than people who lived in the first century. And second, these people weren't expecting Jesus to be raised any more than people today would. They have no expectation whatsoever that that is going to happen. These women are not coming to the tomb with spices, thinking, oh, well, we're bringing these burial spices, but, you know, we're hoping that he's going to be raised from the dead. Absolutely not. They have no expectation of resurrection. Neither did the the two on the road. Neither did the disciples. None. And and so they didn't believe that would happen any more than we do. Well, some would say today, well, maybe they saw something that was actually not a physical resurrection. I mean, maybe it was some sort of a a spiritual experience that they were having, but really not a real resurrection physical body that walked out of the tomb. Well, listen, Luke goes completely out of his way to rule that out, just to take that right off the table. Um, It's interesting that when Jesus first appears to the 11 remaining disciples, they do think that it's something less than physical that they're seeing, right? And so uh, when they first see Jesus in verse 37, it says they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And Jesus, as usual, knows exactly what's on their minds. And so, what does Jesus say next? And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And if that's not enough... Look at what happens next. And when they, he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Now, why is Luke going into this level of detail, even telling us how the piece of fish was prepared? Well, guess what? His point is not that Jesus was into healthy eating habits, okay? And that he took the the broiled option rather than the fried option on the menu, okay? That's not the point. The point is, this was physical. This is a real fish. This is a real body. It's, It's physical. He's going out of his way to show us that it was nothing less than physical. He also goes out of his way to show us something else. Luke names names. He names names. He names the names of the women at the tomb. He gives the name of one of the people that Jesus met on the road to Emmaus. The other gospel writers do this too. Uh, In fact, they go out of their way to do it at points. In the gospel of John, in John 18.10, John gives us the name of the servant of the high priest who got his ear cut off by uh, Peter in the Garden of, of Gethsemane. Um, he tells us his, his name was Malchus. In fact, it's like he's going out of his way. You're like, John, why are you telling us this? It, in fact, in our translations today, often it's put in parentheses because it's like a parenthetical statement. He's going out of his way to tell us this guy's name, Malchus. Mark does the same thing. In Mark 15, 21, when he tells us that, uh, that about uh, the Simon who came alongside Jesus and carried the cross of Jesus... Mark goes out of his way to tell us that Simon was the father of two guys named Alexander and Rufus. Why do they do this? Why do they go out of their way to name names? Dr. Richard Bauckham teaches New Testament at Cambridge. He's one of the leading New Testament scholars in the world. A few years ago, Dr. Bauckham wrote a groundbreaking book in New Testament studies. It was called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And Dr. Bauckham says that the reason the gospel writers are going out of their way to name names is because they're using these names kind of the way that we use footnotes in a paper. Why do we put footnotes in research papers? To show that we have backing. To show that, hey, you can check this out. You can go to this book. You can go to this book on this page. And you can check it out. Well, see, in, in this case, th- these people, these eyewitnesses, they're still alive. And so what the gospel writers are doing is they're saying, hey, you can go and you can check this out. These people are still alive. You can go talk to them. The Apostle Paul does the exact same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. What does he say here? He says, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ." died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. You can go talk to them. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now think about this. Here's the Apostle Paul. He's one of the greatest intellects in history. Up until the point that he saw the risen Christ, he had devoted his life to stopping the spread of Christianity, putting Christians in prison, having them killed. In in one 24-hour period, he turns on a dime and turns from devoting his life to stopping the spread of Christianity to spreading Christianity himself. How does that happen? How do people change like that? It was because of the miracle of the resurrection. It was because they witnessed the risen Christ. You know, 1 Corinthians was written maybe 20 years after the resurrection. Luke, maybe 40 years. So imagine that a book came out and the book alleged that George Washington had risen from the dead and he appeared in Suffolk in 1995. You know, or 1975. Oh yes, he appeared in Suffolk. He lived among us for some 40 days. He ate meals with people, you know, he 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 talked to people, you know, he he walked among us. I mean, how long would it take to shoot that down? But Christianity wasn't shot down. Christianity changed the world. It turned the world upside down. The message of the resurrection turned it upside down. It wasn't shot down. It, was, it, it spread like crazy. It changed the world. How do you account for that? How do you account for the change in the lives of these people? How do you account for the fact that they go from you know running scared and timid or even trying to stop Christianity? How do they turn from that to devoting their lives and laying down their lives to spread Christianity? How? How do you account for that? How do you account for their changed lives How do you account for the existence and the spread of the Christian church apart from the resurrection? The burden of proof is on you to account for that. You say, well, maybe Jesus rose from the dead, but I still have questions. I mean, I have questions about all kinds of things. I have questions about the the details of creation. I, I have questions about why there's So much suffering in the world. Okay. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, don't even worry about those questions. Because the whole Christian faith is just false. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, guess what? There are answers to all of those questions. We might not know exactly what they are. But if Jesus rose from the dead, there are answers to all those questions. All of the pieces of the puzzle do fit in place. Everything hangs on the resurrection of Christ. And if Jesus rose from the dead, it means something else. It means that he is Lord of this world. If Jesus rose from the dead, it means he is Lord of the universe, the Son of God. And it means that you and I owe him our allegiance. Now in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul is at the Areopagus in Athens. And he's talking to the Athenian philosophers there. And he says this, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You know what this means? It means that one day you and I are going to stand before Jesus Christ. We're going to stand before him. He's going to be our judge. And we would be wise ...to turn to Him and to trust Him while we have the opportunity to do that. But here's the wonderful news. Your judge can be your Savior. Your judge can be your Savior. Okay, And that brings us to the second thing we see here in Luke 24. Don't miss the meaning of the resurrection. So before these people recognized that this was the risen Jesus it's clear that they didn't understand what was going on. They, they didn't understand the meaning of his death. They, they obviously didn't understand the meaning of his resurrection. First of all, they didn't understand the meaning of his death. I mean, that's clear by what they say in verse 20 and 21. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But obviously now we know that's not the case because he was crucified. You see, the, they, you know, in their mindset, the Messiah was the one who was going to come in and they were under Roman occupation the Messiah was going to come in and you know and deal with the Romans but we know that Jesus was crucified by the Romans so he couldn't have been the one you know that's what they were thinking i mean they to them the messiah was the one who was going to deliver them from their sufferings they didn't understand that god's plan was that the messiah was going to redeem them through his own sufferings, by taking their sins and our sins upon himself and dying in our place. Sergeant Dennis Weichel died three years ago in eastern Afghanistan when he lifted up a little Afghan girl from the road who was about to get hit by a truck, got her out of the way, and took the impact himself. He was part of a convoy that was coming down the road, and they saw these little Afghan children out in the road, and they were picking up shell casings in the road because they could uh, sell them and get money for them. And uh, the soldiers got down. They shooed the kids away. They got going again, and this one little girl darted back into the road, and Sergeant Weichel, in just a completely selfless act, leaped down, took the child in his arms, tossed her aside, and took the full impact of a 16-ton armored vehicle see at this point these people don't they don't have they don't have it in their minds that God's plan was that the messiah was going to come and take the full impact of our sins for us that he was going to save us by dying in our place and so at this point they didn't understand the, the meaning of all that. They, they didn't, even though in the Old Testament it was there, prophecies about the Messiah being a suffering servant who would die for our sins, it, it was there, but they, they hadn't put the pieces together. They hadn't understood prophecies like Isaiah 53, 6, which says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. God's plan was for him to take the full impact for our sins. That they needed that explained. They didn't they didn't get it. Someone had to explain it. Guess what? They had a great Bible teacher to explain it to them on the road. Jesus comes alongside these two and he says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of art to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory in beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So at first, they didn't understand the meaning of his death until Jesus explained it. They certainly didn't understand the meaning of his resurrection. It's interesting that at first they don't recognize Jesus. And you see this in some of the other gospel accounts as well, that people at first, they don't Recognize the risen Christ for who he is. You see this here in verse 16. It says, Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So, what's going on here? Well, part of it is that they're just not expecting resurrection. I mean, if we attended a friend's funeral and a few days later we see someone who looks like our friend, the first thing that pops in our minds is, Oh, it's not, you know, oh, they've been raised from the dead. We, you know, we just don't. We don't think like that. It's not what we would think. And so they're not expecting resurrection. And so, you know, they're not, <laughs> they're just not thinking that when they see him. That's part of it. But part of it is that it's clear that the risen Christ's body, although completely physical, is somehow transformed. Because he does things like, you know, uh, vanish at will and appear at will, right? So what's, what's up with that? What's, what's, what's happening there? Well, if you've read the Gospels, you know that Jesus raised other people from the dead. Lazarus, um, Jairus's daughter, the, uh, the, the widow's son at Nain, okay? But when those people were raised, they were raised in bodies that were going to die again. The resurrection of Jesus is not like that. When Jesus is raised, Jesus has defeated death And he is raised in a glorified resurrection body that is never going to face death again. And why is that significant to you and me? Because the Bible tells us that when Christ returns and believers are raised, that we're going to have glorified resurrection bodies like the one that Jesus had. Resurrection bodies, imperishable bodies that are not going to be subject to cancer cells or MS or arthritis, you know, or any kind of injury or tragedy or death. Glorified bodies. Um, Paul compares it in 1 Corinthians 15 to like a seed that's put in the ground. So um, if you put a little seed into the ground, uh, it comes up as something different. And Paul says that that's the way it is with our perishable bodies. Our perishable bodies are put into the ground. But when Christ returns and we're raised, it's going to be something glorious and altogether different. So he says in 1 Corinthians 15, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Just like the body of Jesus was changed, our bodies one day are going to be changed. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 15 to say, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Now, if you know Christ and you die, you're going go to he- go to heaven, okay? You're going you're, you're gonna to immediately go to be with Jesus, if you have saved loved ones who have have died okay they are with the lord you can be confident of that and it's glorious okay second corinthians 5 says that that uh, that they're absent from the body but present with the lord but what paul is talking about here in first corinthians 15 is is something altogether different he's talking about the day when christ returns and on that day When believers are raised, we're not going to be absent from the body anymore. (laughs) We're going to have new bodies, right? Real, physical, resurrection bodies. Your your body is going to to touch earth, okay, in a a renewed world. A new heaven and a new earth. You're going to have a, a glorified resurrection body, as Christ did when he was ...when he was raised. Um, now, I'm indebted to Tim Keller... ...for a wonderful application of this truth. How should this transform our lives? To understand this. To understand that you know, we're going to live for all eternity... Okay, in, 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 a, ...in a new heaven and a new earth... With, with, ...with resurrection bodies. How should that truth really come home to us... ...and change our lives... Well, one thing it means is this: it means that you're not going to miss anything. You are not going to miss anything. I mean, all of us start out life with all kinds of dreams, you know. And one of the reasons why people in our culture are in such a hurry is that they think, you know, I've got to, I've got to get all, I've got one life to do all this, you know. And they've got, we've got all these dreams, you know. I've got to have lots of money um, and the perfect house. And the, the perfect marriage, and the, the perfect family, and uh, you know, got to be a great athlete and 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 famous, and, you know, and, and on and on and on. We we and then, um, as we go through life, you know, kind of reality hits and reality hurts, and uh, things intervene, and there's just there can be this tremendous sense of disappointment and regret of you know unfulfilled longings and wishes and dreams that we have. Had and, and, and even worse, I mean, for all of us, uh, you know, death intervenes. And these, these, these perishable bodies that we live in, they have things that go wrong with them. And, all, and for all of us. And, um, and we, you know, there's a tremendous sense of, of crushing disappointment that can set in. But what if the resurrection is true? Johnny Erickson taught a, is a Christian woman who has spent most of her life as a paraplegic. She was injured in a swimming accident as a teenager and ever since then has been in a wheelchair. And she tells about one time she was in a a service and the speaker said, I want everyone to kneel in prayer. Well, obviously she's sitting there in a wheelchair and she can't kneel. And Johnny was raised Episcopalian and so, you know, kneeling... In church was something that was incredibly meaningful to her. And so she sees everybody else in the room kneeling, and she's sitting there in a wheelchair and, 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 and she can't kneel. And so everybody else is kneeling, and she bursts into tears. She's crying. And the thought occurs to her, you know what? I am never going to be able to kneel before the God that I love. And then she says this, and then I remembered the resurrection. Just before the party gets going at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on my resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees, kneel quietly before the feet of Jesus, and then I'm going to be on my feet dancing. Can you imagine the hope that this gives to someone with a spinal cord injury like mine? Can you imagine the hope this even gives to someone who is manic depressive? No other religion, no other religion promises new bodies, a new material universe. Only in the gospel of Christ do people hurting like me find such enormous hope. Listen, you will miss nothing. You will miss nothing. You will eat and drink and laugh and dance. You will have... Perfect relationships, okay. A perfect uh, enjoyment in serving God. I mean, it's just going to be like a trillion times better than, than it could ever be here. And so, just one implication of this truth is: relax. You 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 will miss nothing. Another implication of this is that you can live your. You're free to live your life as a giver, instead of a grabber. Let me explain what I mean by this. When I was a child, it was a long time ago, um, when I was a little kid, I can remember a beer commercial. Um, If you're a certain age, you can probably remember this, but uh, the tagline in it was sort of like, go for the gusto, okay, something like that. You only go around once, grab for the gusto, Okay, that commercial's long gone, but that philosophy is pervasive in our culture, right? Grab all you can while you can. You get one life to do it. Grab all you can while you can. Listen, the resurrection is true. You can live your life as a giver, not a grabber. Why? If the resurrection is true, I mean, listen, you're going to live for all eternity in a a glorified, resurrected body. Um, And so... You know you're not you're gonna miss nothing. So I mean, if 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 that's true, listen you can you can be generous. You can you can be generous with money. You can be generous with your time. You can put other people above yourself. Why? Because you know you've got you've got all eternity to live with with Christ and to just enjoy enjoy life. In a resurrected body, you're not going to miss anything. And so, you know what? You can live this life just in a very generous way. Putting the needs of others above yourself. Being a giver and not a grabber. Because you've got all eternity to experience something beyond what we can even conceive of. And so... There's no reason to 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 grab in this life. You can you can give in this life. You know, if God loved you so much that He gave His Son for you, raised Him from the dead, and you know that one day He's going to raise you, l- listen. You can you can give. You can give of yourself. Give of your resources. Uh, love God. Love people. Put the needs of others first, because you know that you've got. Forever, you're not going to miss anything, and that what you give in this life is just going to come back to you like a billion fold in the future. Tell you something else, this kills worry. I mean, wh- I mean, if you really understand this, okay, and why would you, why would you worry so much about stuff in this life? Uh, this life is like a drop in the bucket. I mean, it's like it, James, this is like a vapor if you know that you're not going to miss anything and that you've got all eternity that's greater than you could ever conceive with your finite mind, if you know that that's coming, I mean, why be so torn apart by anxious care about stuff here on this earth? Why would you, be, why would you be, uh, live so much of your life in fear? Why would you be afraid? I mean, uh, you know, it's really irrational for believers when we think about it, when we contemplate what our future is, What do we have to be afraid of? (laughs) the, The best is yet to come, and it's secure. It's secure. You don't have to live in worry. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live in regret. You are just totally and completely free to love God and love others with joy rising in your hearts because Jesus rose, and because one day you are going to rise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious truth of the resurrection. May we let it sink in. May we allow it to change our lives, our whole perspective on life as it's intended to. And Father, I pray for anyone here who came in today uncertain about what it means to have a relationship with you. I pray that... In this moment, that they would turn to Jesus and trust him and welcome him into their lives. Father, for those of us who who came in knowing Christ, we pray that we would know him in a deeper way. We pray that we would experience the reality of the resurrection in a deeper way than ever before. May, May we look back and say that this Easter was a turning point, a defining moment in our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about what it means to have a a relationship with Him, and maybe you want to talk with someone, pray with someone, I'm going to be here at the front. I'll be here after the service as well. I would love to talk uh, with you. If you're here today um, and God's speaking to you about about becoming a part of this church family, uh, we want to invite you to come, as a couple of people did in our early service um, today. Uh, We would just love to talk with you and to welcome you. Let's stand together as we sing. Message. Christ is the answer for every